and by the way, I'm torn, so torn because I dislike Gregory Gaultier as a squash player so much, yet he's coaching one of the players who I like, uh, probably could be my favorite overall player that I've ever known in squash. I've known Norel Shabini since he was a little kid, basically, uh, playing in the World Juniors here. And now she's being coached by Darth Vader. So it's um, very, very difficult for me. Uh, and I don't know if that matters to Nora or not, but it is difficult for me to, to, to deal with that. But uh, all seriousness, Nora seems to have in her interviews a, a sense of history. And it seems like it, it's driving her a bit. About to leave. Already packing, come with me. I'm not really asking. We'll get away to a place where we don't know. What about this? This call is being recorded. All right. Uh, welcome, PJ. Uh, we we are we are kind of um in a boat without one of our paddles right now. It's Sunday. Connor O'Malley is uh, at his 25th high school reunion and unable to join us. So we're either going to prove one of two things here, that Connor is indispensable and this podcast cannot go on without him, or we're going to throw up maybe like the the whole Connor O'Malley is like the Wizard of Oz and it's a a charade and like the man behind the curtain is really, I mean, it's just really, this is so easy to do. Basically, so far, I just press record, which is pretty much what Connor does. So, so far, so good. I thought I thought you did that really well, really. Let, well. And, and only time will only time will tell as as to how we do in that uh, in that department. Left, I left clicked. I left clicked on record as Connor gave me very very explicit instructions on how to go about this. So we 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 shall see. So um, just before we start, the biggest thing that happened in squash, and we want to talk about it. Um, um, we'll, we'll we'll jump yeah. right into it. Is obviously K-pop IVE right. K-pop IVE. I mean, do, do we want me to? I mean, obviously the biggest story in squash by far. And and I was thinking, Huge. not one Sunday morning. My voice isn't as what it, what it should be, but I was thinking. Um, ready? Are you ready to sing this with me, PJ? Ready? W A V E. I see you falling deep for me, <laughs> baby. Yes, I'm all you need. Ride the W A V E. Thoughts? Got it. Killed it. <laughs> Killed it. You're on fire this morning. I don't know what you did last night, but um, whatever, whatever, whatever it was, that uh, that itinerary, you should you should keep that up. I'm very impressed. If that doesn't get us into the Olympics, nothing will. Uh, K- K-pop. Uh, <laughs> did, did you watch the video I sent you? What was that all about? I have no what, idea. I, of course I did. Yeah, yeah. Of course I did. it was. It was like. Um, just an Asian version of the Spice Girls. Really, it was quite bizarre. Three point five million followers they have on Instagram. Three point five million. Yeah, I just wonder where they get the squash idea from because it was absolutely brilliant. I mean, I loved it, absolutely loved it. And the fact that the most of what well, I say, most of the video, the first minute and a half to two minutes, is primarily just them j- jumping around on a squash court on a red squash court, red with a red um, ball, looking like obviously with a red ball. And they they've obviously never played before, but still, I, lo- I love the idea. I'll tell you what, love the idea. I've seen worse videos of people playing squash who aren't squash players like in movies and things like that where like people just bunch of fat old guys fat old guys who can't breathe basically who run around the court running into walls so that wasn't terrible and the eyewear they all it's funny that none of them wore eyewear when they were actually playing but all off the court shots they were all wearing eyewear red red eyewear of course (laughs) (laughs) so it was it was awesome so shout out k-pop iv maybe we'll get k-pop ive on the show that's uh, something to look forward to maybe but Ride the wave. Well, that's all we're doing right now, Bill. That's all we're doing. Hey, if we don't take anything away from this, W A V E, baby, 
yes, I'm all you need. Sounds like a John Shia tweet, actually, kind of, a little bit. It could, well, <laughs> maybe that's where they get the idea. Who knows? Who knows? Inspired. So the World Championships ended on Thursday uh, in Chicago um, with uh, Nora El-Shabini and Ali Farag as champions. So you were on site there, uh, obviously, as part of the uh, the PSA broadcast crew. So want to get some insight on that. Let's start with, with Nora El-Shabini. I mean, Nora El-Shabini... Um, is Norel Shabini the greatest women squash player of all time, PJ, after that, uh, 27 years old, after that uh, performance uh, at the PSA World Championship, her seventh at 27 years old, which is just staggering. To, uh, it's it, it's certainly up for debate. <clears throat> you, you can't ignore the domination from Heather Mackay back in the kind of 60s and the 70s. Six-time, sorry, 16-time consecutive British Open champion. British Open, obviously, back in that era, we never had a World Championships then. So the, the British Open was considered the World Open, they called it. They would have called it because it, it became the World Open, then it became the World Championships. Um, but I would have to say that we, since... I would say that the level that Shabini's playing at now is the, by far the best of all time. If you look at... Where she where she picked up after Nicole David left off. Nicole David dominated from two thousand and five to around two thousand and fifteen. Um, that was obviously on the higher tin. At the back end of two thousand and fifteen, the tin went down from a nineteen inch to a seventeen inch tin, and that was then when pretty quickly you actually saw Nicole David's career come to a bit of a a bit of a an end, really, because you then had the likes of Raneem El-Walili, Noor Tayeb, and Noor shabini kind of burst onto the scene. And the way that they played, they adapted their game for me a little bit quicker than Nicole did. They were a bit more dynamic into the front of the court. Their short games were more effective than Nicole's. And I'm not taking anything away from Nicole because she was a great champion. You look at, I think she was number one for, I can't remember how many months now. It was crazy. Years, years, and you know, nine years or something stupid at number one. But when you see the squash that these ladies are playing now with Hamami, Goha, Tayeb still in, Raneem, unfortunately, she's retired, and Shabini, who's at the top of that tree, it's just on a different planet. The, the quality that they're playing and the athleticism and the... The, the movements now, the court coverage is has, for me, far surpassed anything I've ever seen and I think most generations have ever seen. And I'm, I'm, I'm actually, I wonder if that level will be replicated again post this particular era. It's almost like the, the uh, when you had the Federer and the Djokovic and the, the Nadal's, will that level ever be repeated again? Jahangir and Janshir, Rodney... And dits in that era in the in the nineties that for me hasn't been uh, reached again, and I think we're seeing this golden period with the ladies right now. Interesting about the to go back to Nicole David in sport overall in sport. I'm trying to think, and you you kind of um, made made me think about this. Is has there ever been a rule change in sport that affected a great player's career more than the tin change? affected Nicole David's career? I mean, she was, she was at the time still on top of the sport, right? And 
as you just pointed out, yeah. it was immediate. It was very immediate that the, yeah. the tin change yeah. uh, changed the whole scope. So, so just looking back at it, pretty fascinating. Uh, did Nicole David could she have won like five more world championships if uh, if we kept that tin where it was? Um, I mean, it's a, I suppose it's it's, the, it's a, an, an interesting question. I th- I feel that had the lower tin come in, put it this way, <clears throat> had the lower tin come in earlier on in Nicole's career she would have had the ability to adapt her game. Yeah, I just think that she was so set in her style of play at that period of time. She would have tweaked some things and made some changes with her coach, Liz Irving, or possibly moved on and gone and seen another coach, like so many players do today. And that could have aided her short game because that wasn't um, really something that she would have required on that 19-inch tin. Back to your back to your previous point. I I don't know of any sports where there has been such a a change that has separated players in the way that the lower tin did for for the for the ladies game. And I, I, it definitely made a huge difference in the men's for, game, but for, um, even more so in the in the ladies. For sure, and it's interesting because uh, obviously I, I remember when it happened. I was very involved with squash at the time. I don't remember the like there being a huge controversy behind it. Like you would think something like that today. Obviously, with all the social media, internet, Reddit boards, um, squash stories, that there would have been like an outcry of uh, of. Uh, disconcerted whatever the word is like some dissent against it and it seemed like that it's like oh we're gonna lower oh by the way we're gonna lower the 10 for the women okay sounds good it was a suggestion that was made by somebody at the um the psa because i if you remember back at tournaments like the tournament of champions the john nimick used to like to alternate between men's matches and women's matches right and it became such an inconvenience for the men's match a new a, a team had to come on and then change the tin for the ladies and so on and so on. And this had this took place four to, four times in a day because the, we had eight matches in a day, and I think it might have even been Lee Beecher who suggested why don't we get the ladies to trial a seventeen inch tin. There were a few question marks about it initially. A lot of people just felt that call it sexist, call it what you will. They just felt that the ladies would really struggle on that type of team because they couldn't move to the front as well. Ridiculous, it seemed, as it sounds now, because when you look at the way they play, uh, it's been no issue for them to adapt whatsoever. So there was a bit of trepidation and some reservations going into it. But for me, it's one of the best things that could have happened for for the ladies game because I, I mentioned this in a couple of a couple of events ago right now with everything that's going on in the game I actually I'm enjoying watching a lot of the ladies matches more than I am some of the men's yeah no true so, true same same here interesting I'm curious because I, I was involved with uh, the US Open at the time when we were changing the tins between matches and we were doing it on the <laughs> lower courts where there was basically just me and if I could wrangle a uh a Drexel student on the lower court during the qualifying or during the early rounds, we do it. I'm just wondering how many times it didn't get done, right? I mean, because I I know for a fact it didn't get done at a recent pretty big tournament uh, where it didn't get rate it didn't get raised and it was played 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 lower. Um, wow. Yeah, so we won't we won't we won't talk about that. But I'm guessing we won't go we won't go to too many things. No, but yeah. So I hated I hated the changing of the ten. It was if I can excuse my language. It was a nightmare to have to change it between every game. It was absolutely a nightmare. So I was very happy yeah. it changed. I'm sure. I'm sure my glee wasn't shared by Nicole David, but for me, it was uh, it was happy. And by the way, disconcerting was the word I was looking for for you uh, English people who are gonna English majors out there who are gonna correct my uh, my language. 
So, <laughs> so, so Sherbini, um, so I, I, as impressive as her wins, uh, uh, a lot of her wins were during the tournament. On, I think her most impressive was her quarterfinal win over Kennedy. I mean, Kennedy is a top 10 player. I mean, she... I, who, who, who coincidentally took her to five in the British Open. Unbelievable, right? So she had made an adjustment of some sort because it's not like Kennedy played really bad. Kennedy looked like she had never been on a squash court before. I've never seen a high-ranked player get taken apart in a major event like that before. Well, I mean, I, I don't know the exact details um, regarding Shabini. I don't know what her uh, religious beliefs and what have you, but if you think back to what Farag did, he was he played the British Open adhering to Ramadan. Mm-hmm. Shabini may well have been adhering to those the, the, the same rules or the same laws and may have struggled to deal with it. I, I, I'm speculating here that this is not confirmed. I don't actually know, but um, if you look at Shabini's run through that British Open, she had a couple of tough five-set matches yes. and really found her stride when she got to the finals. But she did look a little bit more vulnerable and a bit more shaky in those earlier rounds. But this isn't the mark of a true champion, isn't it? She's come away from that British Open, played played brilliantly against Gohar in the final, and then she's turned up at the World Championships. This is now her, and she's she's won a ninth, uh, seventh was it seventh world title in nine? She I think she's played nine finals, and that was her ninth a ninth um, final. So she'd obviously prepared and done her research and her her work leading into the tournament, and then completely blown the field away like I've never seen. Now, I think you've got to credit a, a lot of that to the work that has finally come to fruition that she's been doing with Gregory Gaultier. Because if you compared, and we actually showed a clip of when she played Goha in the World Tour Finals in Egypt, I think it may have been back in last August and uh, in her in one of her previous matches of that tournament, her body shape has completely changed. Yes. She's she's massively trimmed down. She's got definition in the quads and the calves that she didn't have as much in prior um, tournaments. So with Gregory now in her camp, I think he's made um, a tremendous amount of change and difference to Shabini's game. And if ever if ever there was an area of Shabini's game that needed addressing, it would have been the court coverage. Her ball striking and her court craft has always been superb. It's always been world-class. But when she did have those upsets and lose those matches, it was because she couldn't always cover the front area of the court and, and she wasn't as dynamic. Now that she's got that, she's the complete player. She's as as good as a player as in the ladies' game as I've ever seen. And the, the, the worrying thing for the rest of the tour is you've got... Goha now, who's two in the world, that would have that may actually help her in the long run, but maybe we'll get back to that later. But you've got Hamami and, and Tayeb. The gap that Shabini's now starting to bridge between her and the rest of the tour is growing. Before it felt as though that she'd reached this level and the players behind were, were closing that slowly but surely. But now that she's got herself fitter, a quicker, stronger, that gap now for me is actually... It's it's going the other way. It's growing. It's getting bigger. I think the other players are are on their knees praying for marriage and a baby at this point. She she actually said in one of her post match interviews that not a year ago she was considering quitting. She she was considered retiring. 
Yeah. I mean, there wasn't much more left for her to win. She was she was the dominant force. Maybe a little bit of the pressures of that chasing pack catching her up and her feeling that she didn't want to do what was required to continue to keep her, her distance. But Gregory Gaultier, you know, he, whatever he's doing, it, it's it's like a, a magic formula because she's not turned her career around at all, but she's she's re, she's rejuvenated it and she looks like. She's enjoying her squash again. So you couldn't say that of her a year ago. And, and by the way, the the uh, I, I'm torn, so torn because I dislike Gregory Gaultier as a squash player so much. Yet he's coaching one of the players who I like, uh, probably could be my favorite uh, overall player that I've ever known in squash. I've known Norel Shabini since she was just since she was a little kid, basically uh, playing in the World Juniors here, and now she's being coached by Darth Vader. So it's um, very very difficult for me. Uh, and I don't know if that matters to Nora or not, but it is difficult for me to, to, to deal with that. But uh, all serious, in all seriousness, Nora seems to have in her interviews a, a sense of history. And it seems like it, it's driving her a bit. When you listen to her post-match interviews, she mentions Nicole David. She mentions her world championships and how important they are as opposed to her number one ranking. And she seems to like is interested in solidify not that she already hasn't solidified her place in, in the game, but in the end she could be, if, if we flash forward, you know, injuries aside, obviously marriage, babies, anything, anything you take away, if she continues playing, you could have the talk that is, is Nora Shabini not only the greatest woman's player ever, is she the greatest squash player ever? That, I mean, that's in the, like, kind of like the Serena Williams, the Serena Williams, uh, obviously not, Obviously, men players can beat her for sure, just like you know men. Sure, play. But sure. It, does does that dis, you know uh, exclude them from being considered the greatest squash her from being the greatest squash player ever? Well, she will always have that comparison to somebody like Jahangir Khan. You know, the, the you look at the five and a half years without losing a match, four and a half years he never lost a game mm-hmm. within that period. Which just when you try and think about that and put that into context is a, is an absolute joke. He also won the British Open ten years consecutively. That has never been done since. That won't ever be done again either. So that's where she'll be compared when it comes to world championships. Well, she won seven. She's been in nine finals. Look at Nicole David, for an example, as far as world championship performances go. She played in eight finals and she won all eight of those. She had a 100% conversion rate there, which also is is stunning. Nicole had, what was it? Again, I'll have to, we'll have to check the record books, but I think it was around nine years at number one. So how do you gauge it? Well, because I mean, there is the thought, PJ, and I'm only being a little bit facetious here. And you get to this argument with every sport, um, and you could say that uh, Jahangir Khan was he playing against plumbers and carpenters, right? That's that's the argument when it comes to like LeBron, and when you look back to like Wilt Chamberlain, or when you look back to Babe Ruth and players in history. You know, the the modern fan says, yeah, yeah, he was playing against plumbers and carpenters, meaning meaning that the level of play of his opponents doesn't rise, the the depth wasn't there, and the level of the opponents doesn't rise to what it is today. You got to think Jahangir Khan came on the scene at fifteen. He was beating the likes of Jeff Hunt, Kamal Zaman. So no, they weren't carpenters and what other tradesmen you mentioned. I'm not sure. He 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 took over in an era in an era where there was a bit of a transformation coming along. Those guys potentially were coming to the end of their career, but still playing a very good level. But then what Jahangir did after that, he was beating the likes of Chris Dittmar, Jan Shikhan, Rodney Martin. Those guys there in any other era, had Jahangir not been there, would have all been number one in the world. 
but because of Jahangir's dominance, they, they, they never got there. That was the golden period of the game where the game was as strong, if not stronger. It's still a good talking point now. When I watch some of the videos, some people might say the pace isn't as fast or they're not hitting it as hard, but that's because of the rackets that they had. But they were still getting onto the ball early. They were having, you know, two hour, two, two hour matches. It was, a, it was a different game. They weren't as dynamic into the front until the likes of Rodney came along. But um, so it, it was a, it was going through a bit, bit of a transition, but it was still a very, a very good level that these guys were playing. Yeah, thinking fitness-wise, so, fitness is more more the issue like today. And I think that's in every sport. The, the way people train now is a bit different. You don't have like Babe Ruth, like eating hot dogs and smoking cigarettes and then going out and hitting 61 home runs. And, and it, I mean, it goes back even as, as recently as the U.S. Open, I forget what year it was, like Amr Shabano lost in like the semifinals or something like that. And I was, I got into a car, the, the, the night had ended. I got into a car and was heading downtown to a restaurant and we pull up in a crossing in front of us and the light was Amr Shabano walking with his squash bag, his full squash gear still on, just his shorts and his, the, what he was on court with, smoking a cigarette crossing the street. <laughs> I mean, it was, yeah. it was, it was pretty startling. It's not, it's not things you see anymore these days is what I'm saying, I guess. No, no, he did the same thing when he beat Nick Matthew in the final of the U.S. Open one year. Yes. We, we, um, you know, we we saw him out and about smoking, but that that was Shabs. That was the way that he did it. But then you can also argue that the guys today, yes, the the it's they're maybe more dynamic, more powerful, more explosive. Into the, the game has become that way. But if you look at the training that Jonah Barrington used to do, Rodney Martin, uh, Chris Dittmar. Chris Dittmar used to spend an hour on the Versaclimber. They, those guys used to do between 20 to 30 laps of 400s, sub 75 seconds with a 90 second break and then go again. So some of the fitness that those guys were doing in that period, the guys today couldn't do. It was a very different type of training. It was much more endurance based. But now, it, it, don't get me wrong, it's much more scientific, much more specific and, and purposeful. But um, I don't think those guys, the guys today, are any fitter than certain tour pros of, of back in that era. It's kind of like the Drago Rocky, like the Drago it's Rocky montage, right? Like where he's, he's got all the high tech stuff where exactly. Rocky's running in the mountains. Yeah. So in the end, though, it looks like, and if, exactly. if you analyze everything, uh, uh, both the men and the women, actually, but on the women's side, the number of minutes you spend on court in one of these championships where you have to play six matches makes a difference for sure. And I think we saw it here. Um, I'm looking at Sherbini's minutes, uh, 24, 23, 27, 23 against Kennedy, 43 against King, and then just 38 against Gohar. Um, so obviously that makes a huge difference and we'll talk about with Farag it obviously was a big big factor in, in Farag's uh Farag's uh, run to the title but um so Norel Sherbini obviously um just congratulations just it, it was so much fun to watch and knowing and also it's interesting all the congratulations that Nor got on social media from the other players that you don't see when like a Noran Gohar wins a championship or when another player wins a championship so it's obvious that the level of respect uh, for Nor for Norel Sherbini is so high amongst everyone on on the tour, despite the fact that Darth Vader coaches her, which is uh, good. Just shows what a what a strong what, what a great person she is. She she's just she's a delightful human being. When you see her operating the the restaurant, the breakfast room, she's there with her parents, mm-hmm. but she's over on other tables with other Egyptian players. She's always very welcoming. She's always very polite. She always gives you the time of day. She always says hello. Always happy to chat. 
always got a smile on her face. Yeah. And it's the, the fact that when the door closes, she, she can become such a, a warrior is right. it's phenomenal. And I think she is probably one of the most liked world number ones, world champions ever, the on, without a doubt. The only, I don't know anybody that dislikes her. The only negative I would say for her, besides the Gaultier thing, is uh, which is just my my deal, not anybody else's, is she's a bird person. So she posts a lot of a lot of pictures on Instagram of her with like her parrot on her head and stuff like that. And bird people are always very suspect to me. Anybody who's into birds like that is always a little suspect. So there's just that. I'm throwing that out there. Just, just um, that's that's yep. the only I don't know what the term is. The only little little drawback for Nor. So that's your gripe. That's, that's, that's I, your that's your that's, uh, it's only your gripe. I, that's a hundred percent the case. So, um, but let's talk about Noran Gohar. Um, um, Noran Gohar, obviously, at this time last year was almost considered like unstoppable, right? She was she had come coming off Chicago at, at the uh, Windy City Open, where she basically didn't drop a game, winning a platinum against a ridiculously strong draw. It seems that she does not have a plan B when it comes to Sherbini. Like she she goes up against Sherbini, that she plays tries to play the same game she always does with Sherbini. Now when she gets into these finals with Sherbini, like what needs to change? Um, can Gohar turn this around? Obviously, she has one of the most the one of the premier coaches in the world in Rod Martin in her stable. So after that match and the previous matches uh, with Sherbini where she struggled, what a uh, what uh what do you think Rod is saying to her? Like what what needs to change? I mean, they've been doing some work together now since the World Champs in 2021. I, I have definitely seen a few subtle changes in Noron's game. I think there's a, there are a couple of contributing factors that, that are making life a little bit more difficult for Goha. Right now, if you look at her runs through tournaments, she isn't really troubled until she gets through to the semi-finals. So she's not battle-hardened. This this may change now for Shabini now that, that the draws will make a little bit of a shift. But there, there are a few little quirks and a few things that we're seeing in Noran's game that weren't there a year and a half ago. A little bit more hold, a few subtle changes of pace. Now, when you look at the success of Gohan, and how she kind of how her, her rise to the top was... It was so quick, really. It was because of her aggression, her intensity, her ability to get onto the ball and apply such a pace that troubled her opponents. Her opponents now have started to figure that part out. So she needs to go off and, and adapt her game again. And as I said, Rod is, is bringing in a few of those. But the problem that's happening with somebody like Shabini, Shabini has the ability to now absorb that pressure, but she can hold and stop the movements of Gohar. And Gohar, as you said, she doesn't have a plan B. She will revert back to her default mode, which is just trying to play faster and faster and faster. And as a result of that, the accuracy drops. And at the moment, Shabini feels comfortable with that. She just gets, she gets picked off. The period where Gohar was having a little bit of success over Shabini as well. Shabini had been troubled with a, a couple of injury issues. I think she was in a bit of a lull in her own career. Shabini now has gone away and worked on some of those aspects, and that's the reason why she's pulling away. Can Gohar catch up? I, right now, I just feel as though for Gohar to beat Shabini, it 
it will take Goha to be playing her absolute best, and Shabini will have to have a drop off ah. from her best. But if you, if I mean that's that is a possibility, but it's going to have to take Shabini to to drop her level a little bit because I'm I just feel like what what may help Goha a little bit, uh, Bill, is because she's been world number one for fifty seven months. That comes itself with the pressure. Now the fact that Shabini's gone to number one and she will be the target, that pressure, it's interesting that Shabini doesn't feel that that's a pressure, she's more about titles, but Goha may be able to just release herself a bit more and not be con- um, kind of conscious of the fact that everybody's looking at her as the number one and she can just go out and play and, and free arm it. That may release her a touch, I, d- I don't know. But it's there's a lot. there's some work that needs to be done, but... There are definitely improvements in Goha's game, but at the moment, the level that Shabini's playing at, I just feel is just 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 good. a random question based off based off off of what you just said. Um, do you think like, when it comes to pressure, the fact that the women players such as Nor Shabini, uh, Nor El Tayeb, Amanda, that they've played at the highest level at such a young age, they were on the tour playing world championships playing platinum events when they were when they were 15 and 16 years old which is quite unusual for men to be playing uh the later rounds anyways the, mm-hmm. obviously there's some younger players who get eliminated early in the men's rounds but for the fact that Noral Shabini's basically been on this stage since she was 13 years old um do you think like pressure is even a thing for her anymore I think the only pressure that she feels will be pressure she puts herself under. I don't think there's any external pressures at all. No, I saw Shabini play her first ever British Open. I think she was about 14 or 15. And you could see the potential that was there. And she went or she was around top level squash from a very young age. So maybe got used to it quicker than most. So it could that could be a factor for sure. Could definitely be... Um, one of the thing, one of the reasons that she, but all the players feel pressure. I don't care what any of them tell you; they will all have a sense of nerves or anxiety. It's it's how and who deals with it best, and how who channels it in a certain way that can cope with those particular situations. That you, you know, if you just a crazy stat between Goha and um, Shabini. I think they've played now in. 14 finals and it's 11-3 Start in the great. head-to-heads between it's it's astonishing yeah because you would think even then bill as i said you need to catch shabini a little bit cold surely there'll be there would have been and i guarantee you within those 14 finals there would have been more than three occasions where shabini wasn't feeling 100 percent, and she would have been off of her best it's just that her level right now is is just on a different so just a couple couple more quick things on the women's side um, and, and Gohar specifically starting to get a little bit of a reputation of being a bit chippy out there um, a bit a bit over physical yeah. it's interesting to me yeah. watching specifically the Hamami match which was theater squash theater at its best right I mean it was it, <laughs> a lot a lot of compelling viewing wasn't compelling it? viewing for yeah. sure the, the, the funny part is just what we're just saying compelling viewing now if picture that was a saw and making it would been oh my god our sport is going down the tubes this is not what squash is yeah. this is ruining the game but when gohar and hamami do it it's called spirited they're being spirited out there so seems to be a, a little bit of a dichotomy between the two um and i, I mean i love watching hamami and gohar 
play each other. It, it is one of the few few um, matches on the PSA Tour where you know those players don't like each other. They're not going out for dinner afterwards, yeah. for sure. Um, but, oh, no. but I mean, it, 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 does Gohar get a little bit of a pass because she's a, a female player from being um, from being a little bit over-physical? Or is Hamami just as much to blame for when they get together? Um, I think both parties at times are at fault. I felt that the referee could have stepped in. There was a lot of lessons learned in that match with the referees because at the moment, everything is being compared to a sale. Right. Whatever situation happens on the court, everybody said, well, what would have happened if a sale had done that? Or, you know, so that's becoming a little bit annoying for, for everyone involved. I've sat in referees meetings and the exact same thing is happening there. Right. So that's something that they, that they need to be aware of. Um, I feel the referees were a little bit lenient. Some of the movements, however, I think Tamar Nagari was the central ref. He did pull up Gohar a couple of times for excessive movements and some dangerous play. The back and forth, the, the, the continued dialogue between the players and the refs needed to be stomped out earlier on because that side of it was, it, it became um, tedious. Mm-hmm. So I don't think that kind of situation will happen again. But you're right. I mean, if you looked at, she, she was so blooded. Um, Literally. Her mammy. <laughs> yeah, her knees, her knees and the back of Gohar's leg where there'd been contact through the middle of the court. They're just two players that, obviously there's a massive rivalry between the pair of them, which stems from the fact that when Nuran Gohar started out, she used to train with Omar Abdelaziz in Egypt. And it's very political over in Egypt, who coaches who and right. what players play at what clubs. And Gohar was working with Aziz for a period. He took her up to number two in the world. I think it was, may have got to number one, I can't remember, but he definitely took her up to number two. They then parted ways. As soon as they parted ways, Hamami then jumped in straight away to work with Abdelaziz. Right. She'd, moved, she'd moved on to Rod. Gohard moved on to Rod and Aziz, Aziz then started working with Hamami. So there'd obviously been a few things to, that took place before that, but that was kind of the real nail in the coffin as far as their, you can't even call it a, a, their relationship, or certainly not a friendship, but as soon as that went down, then there was even more friction between the pair of them. So they're both just very similar levels they're both very competitive. They both want to win, and they want to do within their powers what they can to win. And it seems but, it seems like Hamami Hamami has better results, and, and I have to look at the stats to see has a better results against Sherbini. When she plays Sherbini, she seems to give Sherbini a tougher time. So unless the rankings change and the draws change, we're always going to see a Gohar Hamami semi. Instead of seeing Hamami Sherbini finals or Hamami Sherbini, that's that's because if you look at the style of play of Hamami, she's Hamami's style of play is more similar to El Sherbini. Right, Hamami, terrific mover into front of the court. Obviously, she has an ability to hold. She uses deception. She uses weight of shot. She uses front court more. So Gohar is just basically an onslaught. The moment you, the moment the rally starts, everything that she does is a hundred mile an hour. And it's continued applied pressure. Hamami has some subtleties and some variations in a game that are more Shabini-like. So Hamami can implement that against Shabini. She can stop and start Shabini's movement and and cause her to change direction and check her movement. Whereas Gohar doesn't at the moment have the ability to do that. Gohar just tries to blitz Shabini off the court. 
So unless Gohan makes some changes in a game, I think the results will still be very heavily stacked in Shabini's favour. Hamamiya, however, as I think she's got more room for improvement in as much as she's still very young. So she's got an, uh, some room for improvement there with more experience. She can get a bit quicker, a bit stronger, which will then be even more problematic for Shabini because she's got that natural game and that flair that will cause issues. So I can see why her track record against Shabini would be better than Goha's. Her, her bounce back after she, she played 71 minutes, uh, Hamami we're speaking of, uh, 71 minutes against, uh, I, I'm always, I always call her Little Orphan Annie, I forget what her name is, Amini Orphi or whatever her name is, for uh, the, the young um, yeah. the, the young Egyptian girl. She yeah. played 71, Orphy, yeah. 71 yeah. minutes against her and then came back in the quarters and dismantled Sobi in 32 minutes. I mean, was on a mission. So, yeah. uh, 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 And then she went 105 minutes against Gohar. So oh, a full championship for, for Hamami. She's a beast. She, She's a beast. Yeah. Don't, don't, don't be put off by her dainty look and she's, yeah. she's very ladylike and she conducts herself very well on the court but she's ferocious yeah. absolutely ferocious and she's also another one that's very, she's very sweet off the court as well she's very polite she's good fun what do you think of her Ronaldo like tumble against Gohar in game four Looked like she maybe may, may overacted just slightly on that one, but uh, but uh, it, it was it was it was interesting. I, I rarely see someone. I go think to... the majority of players, the majority of players, are definitely highlighting certain situations yeah. that are taking place yeah. on the court. Let's, let's put it that yeah. way. It, not not too many Oscar nominations for for, for, <laughs> for some of the some of the moves. That's for sure. I, I I think every junior boy player in the United States gasped when they saw that and froze frame that when she was when she did that and like have it up on a poster in their room. I'm yeah. I'm guessing anyways. Um. So let's go better the men. Uh, Ali Farag. And speaking of speaking of Ramadan and Ali Farag in the British Open and you know the uh, um his discussing that um the non Ramadan Ali Farag is scary. I mean. He yeah. blitzkrieged yeah. this this World Open. Um, uh, here's here's his minutes yeah. in a in a World Open. We're talking, and these aren't against you know. Uh, and, and he, just just for the record, Bill, World, world Championship. Interesting. We don't be, call it World Open uh, anymore. Okay, because because yeah. uh, there are other podcasters out there who who are doing World Open yeah. um, previews and World Open reviews and calling it that, and that's that's making me call it that. that that's that's what sep- that's what that's what separates us from everybody else. Bill. It's true. I just wanted to see. I, I actually knew that, and I just wanted to see if you. Knew that so that's why i called it a world open so i okay, I, it's good. I appreciate well, it but hopefully i, I didn't disappoint <laughs> you did not so uh 26 minutes against ramit tandon 27 minutes against waller 34 minutes against nathan lake 47 minutes against call 55 minutes against Asal, and then 44 minutes against goad i mean and, and if you i mean obviously you watched all of it i mean just a virtuoso performance i mean that was as good on a men's side that's as good as it gets right i mean that's as big a dominance as i've seen a, a male player he did, he was never in trouble he never never looked like no, he was going to be in those, trouble the last three matches quarter finals onwards um he beat paul cole it was something with the exception of the second game this is off the top of my head i think he lost it 11-5 he won like 11-3 11-4 11-2 or something and Paul Cole played probably the single best game that I've seen when he when he beat Farag in that game. But what Farag did to him for the other three was just insane. Paul Cole just got completely frustrated in the end by the fact that whatever he tried, Farag had an answer. And with interest, he pushed Cole from pillar to post. Cole normally prides himself on how physical he is and how long he can last. Yeah. He ground, Farag ground him to a halt 
in a relatively short period of time because Fareg was so far up the court, taking it early, waiting, holding, flicking, chopping and changing the angles. Paul never got into a rhythm. I don't remember ever seeing Paul Cole have a bad movement day, but on that particular match, he was made to look at times quite ordinary Pedest- with his movement. Pedest- and he, we know we know that he's not, but right. that's what Farag did to him. Right. Amazing. I, I never and never then, thought I'd see that with Paul Call, by the way. I never I never thought I'd see no. that until he got a little bit older, maybe. But I mean, I, it could be that um, maybe the World Championships doesn't have the cachet that it used to have to the to the Rob Owen camp anymore. Um, and then what he did after that, obviously against the Sal, all eyes were were on that particular match. But a Sal obviously battered and bruised after his quarter against Mazen Hisham, and then. There was some situations that took place before a sale went on the court, which maybe we'll touch base on. Oh, oh we may talk about that. We may. That, I don't think that really was an issue. I just feel like Farag was in his rhythm. He'd played a sale enough. He'd watched. He's now watched a sale play enough. He he had his entire team there. He was confident. He was comfortable with his, you know, off the back of the British. So you know, he was. He knew that if he could win that British Open whilst adhering to Ramadan he, and he would now have a, a more full energy tank going into this World Championships then it was going to take something pretty spectacular to stop him and then unfortunately Gawad who had a brutal semi didn't he didn't have the juice after about 25 minutes half an hour you could see Farag just reeling him in I know that there was a, an issue where he tripped on the back of Farag's leg so question for and Gawad struggled with it question for yeah. you on that and um, I'm curious about the rule behind that. So it was a contributing injury, right? Yeah. Although obviously accidental for sure. Um, I saw uh, Farag ran into him. Uh, could Gawad have said, "I can't go on," and when and uh, he'd be declared the winner? Somebody else has asked me that question, and I will need to to do some research on it because, as far as the rules go, from what I know, Gawad could potentially have taken. The victory because of, because it was a contributed injury. But I, again, don't don't quote me on that. But I, if I think back to if we go back to the debacle where Asal was playing Marwan mm-hmm. in Houston, mm-hmm. and Marwan was saying that the injury was caused by Asal and the fact that he couldn't continue. Even even another example, Lucas Serm got drilled in the ear by Asal in the U.S. Open. Right. Right, Lucas could not continue because of a contributed injury. He then wins the match by default. Asal was eliminated. Is the di- so, is the difference in that because they think the Serm thing was more deliberate or more dangerous, um, more more? Maybe yeah, yeah. Maybe that that could be the issue if it's a deliberate. Yeah, it, um, curious, a, curious. A deliberate Im- impact or contact. Yeah, but I will find out on that because that would be interesting. It had and if that's the case, had Gawad been of a certain mentality, he could have just refused to play and then be crowned world champion, right. which would have been a complete farce. <laughs> right, <laughs> exactly. Especially when you're down two love. It's one thing if it happens when it's early in the match or it's one love down. But when you're down two love and you're already losing, it wouldn't have been a good look. But in the end, it is pro sports. Good looks, uh, uh, points, ranking points and money uh, are, are two different things, are three different things, right? So um, good on Gawad if that was an option for him. Let's let's give him credit anyways, even if it wasn't something he could do. Let's give Gawad credit because we are, if nothing else, we love Karim El Gawad, don't we? Don't we, PJ? 
Thanks, Bill. I'm sure you enjoyed that one. Yeah, Joey. Joey, yeah. mind you, Bar- Bar- Barrington was just as bad because he called him Ari Falag. So you listen, you know. But but Joey gave you gave you uh, a flack for mispronouncing Karim Al Gawad's name at some point earlier in your career. And tell me, uh, what was the mispronunciation? No, the the the, the name that I missed up, I called him Karim El Darwish. <laughs> Because the, the cameras at the cameras had panned on the crowd, and Karim Darwish was sitting there, and uh, I just had El Hamami, El Shabini, uh, just so many L's, you know, in my in my head at the time, and we had so much going on behind the scenes there. Um, see on the show that uh, see? I just see it happens to the best of us, Bill. I know. I, 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 so I, you know, I sympathise. So maybe slow down with your criticism of me with my Karim El Garad uh, mention because I'm I'm, I'm <laughs> under a lot of pressure here in my little office in my computer uh, by myself with no other distractions. So so last thing on on Farag oh, yeah, the, yeah. the the Ramadan thing. Um, Again, I know people don't want to keep hearing about it, but I played golf um, last week and there were no water buckets on the course and walking 18 holes with no water buckets on the course was like arduous. If we didn't have like a Gatorade at the turn and like a snack at the turn, we wouldn't have been able to walk 18 holes of golf. And these guys are playing um, with basically not eating or drinking. Uh, it's in- incredible. My, my mistake. Uh, an hour and a half on a squash court is far more taxing than four hours walking around. Having said that, you do probably take a few more shots than most. So you, <laughs> you probably would have used a little bit more energy, but it still wouldn't be up there with what those guys have subjected themselves I, to. The, I shot 89 on Friday. PJ, just just so you know, I broke ninety for the first time uh, this season. So uh, brilliant! What? Uh, how was the back nine? Uh, so let's get to the um, yeah. the the big the big story. Unfortunately, it overshadowed the uh, the World uh, Open Championships. Let's call it the World Open Championships. I like it that way. Everybody's satisfied. No. Um, <laughs> it's the World Championships was overshadowed by the semifinal um, before the semifinal mm-hmm. with Ali Farag and um, Mustafa Sal. Um, Lee Drew got on with Joey Barrington on PSA TV. And for five minutes, they did a deep dive into the miss uh, the missteps of Mustafa Asal, uh, highlighting two specific instances in which he, um, in the um, uh, a match against Mezen Hasham, grabbed his wrist while Mezen Hasham was going for a ball at ten ten. I believe it was in the fifth, if I'm not mistaken. It was in the fifth. And yeah. an, an yeah. another time where he um, he seemed to have hit um, Joel Macon in the head with his racket. Um, obviously, two things for me uh, on this. Number one, what was the impetus behind doing that at that time? Uh, was there a reason behind it, uh, the timing of it all? Uh, that, that's my first question to you. Was, there a, was, there, was it a, a like, hey, pre-planned, hey, this is what we're going to do tonight because it's the semifinal with us all? Um, it, did you guys have a meeting about it and say, this is what we're going to do? Well, um, as, as broadcasters and commentators, our, our job is to bring the fans, the viewers news Mm -hmm. right so anything that's current let's try and put this into context let's say nba playoffs you got the warriors against the lakers game five in game four steph curry elbows lebron james in the face Mm -hmm. all right Mm -hmm. going into game five that's going to be highlighted they're going to bring it out they're going to show examples of what happened and everything else sure that was all we were doing we were just bringing to light an incident that had taken place throughout the tournament Bearing in mind, Mustafa, he does seem to be the the biggest talking point of the tour right now. This is a guy they're trying to just make a point that PSA, I think they're trying to get the point across that PSA are doing their best to try to help this amazing talent, Mustafa Asal, get back on 
track. He's just come off of a six-week ban for some incidents that took place last October. He's He'd been reprimanded. He, he'd served that ban. He missed the British Open as a result of it. So he's now been in very close contact with Lee Drew, who's trying to get Mustafa to be on his best behaviour. It's his first tournament back, and already this is what has happened in that particular event. So they're just trying to bring that into light and view of all the fans, and and it wasn't necessarily just to single him out, but just wanted to show what was what the news was of the tour, what was going on. So do you feel, I mean, in my take on it was, you know, obviously it's, it's, it's good to see. And I love the, love the camera angle. I mean, it's almost impossible for the referees to pick this kind of stuff up in real time. Even with, even the replays we all saw during the tournament did not show that. So, um, which, which is, you know, another issue that we'll speak about, but all players do this kind of stuff. No, I mean, am I, am I wrong? I'm not. I've not seen it in 40 years of me playing squash. I've never seen another player grab another player's hand. No, but other stuff. Not not never. not not that specific grabbing somebody's hand, but um like bodying people, like the leg movement, the the uh, the blocking, all I've, that stuff. I've seen I've seen You've seen it, right? All, all players have done that. All, all players have left a trailing leg. Gregory Gaultier, I did it myself, Nick Matthew, all players would have exaggerated and taken up their space. Um I don't remember seeing players following through with their racket, then an exaggerated extension of the follow-through to then intentionally hit their opponent. I've not seen that before. I, I don't know if he intentionally did it, though. I mean, the, if you watch that, and I, I agree, I am 100% pro-assault, so I, 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 give, I say that before I even launch into this. I mean, they're making it seem like he's Lizzie Borden, basically. I mean, he, he, he clipped him in the head with, with an exaggerated follow-through. That's to me, that's all he did. I mean, the, the grabbing of the wrist, the grabbing right. of the wrist is another thing. And this is, that's a, that's a different story for sure. But the question I have on that PJ is, so that's a penalty, right? I mean, it's not cheating per se. He did something illegal. A penalty should be called. It's like in the NFL, like if a, a, a cornerback like chucks a receiver or grabs his Jersey, right? And if he gets away with yeah. it, gets away with it, he stops a 50 yard pass downfield. If the referee sees it, he gets called for a penalty. So it's not, is that really cheating or is it just a penalty? Is there a difference between the two? It, it didn't get, <clears throat> the, the follow through with Macon didn't get seen at the right. time. That was something that came to for light sure. after The other one, the, the, the wrist um, grab. Talk. That was poor officiating because the, the video referee actually saw that happen. That should have been communicated to the central referee. That should have been a conduct stroke against the South. So you're saying that they saw that on the video and just didn't communicate it? That wasn't something that just came to light? No, correct. They saw it. it the, the video refs see it. When we saw it in real time, we didn't see it. When, they, when, the, when it was replayed again in slow motion, the, the video refs saw it. Interesting. So I did not know that. I don't know if that's been communicated. It's more like people just saw it after this enhanced video came came to light. So interesting that that was seen in real time. So to, to further exacerbate my point, um, soccer, football, corner kicks, you see yeah. people like yeah. holding jerseys, holding yeah. shorts, things like that. And it gets called. It, I mean, yeah. people do it. They try to gain an advantage. Is that part of the sport now? Maybe it is part of squash now, right? I mean, for better or worse. And if you could get well, away with it, you get away with it. As Sal has openly said that he 
I mean, he watches a lot of FIFA. Mm. He's a big FIFA guy. Mm. Uh, watches a lot of the Premier League, watches a lot of soccer. He said he wants to make it like soccer. I think that was actually his quote. He wanted to make squash like soccer. Um, it's There's no place for it in the game. And it, it will, unfortunately, until the time comes, you can't grab players, you can't block, you can't use excessive force, you can't, you know, purposely hit your opponent, hoping you're not, hoping you're going to get away with it. There's too many cameras. And unfortunately, until the time comes where he and his team and whoever's behind him pass this message across to him, he will just continue to get banned. He's hit making in the fa- in the face with the exaggerated follow through. Now I know it's without trying to sound too condescending, but because of your knowledge of a swing and a follow through, the follow through actually deviates line. So normally, when you're following through, that ra- that line that racket will be on a certain path. That line adjusts into the face of making, so that that's, that movement is intentional. Then in the same game, he's in the back right hand corner. He then turns on the ball and he drills. Joel making, okay, it catches him on the racket. But as a player, you should not be playing that because you know exactly where your opponent is. You you don't you don't play that ball. Then you've got the wrist grab, and then after beating making, he goes up and he kicks the front wall in front of a sponsor that he he had co-workers and friends in the front row sitting there watching mm-hmm. that. So an a formal an official complaint has then been logged by by John Flanagan, the, the tournament referee, about that particular incident. So that's four main incidents in one tournament. The first tournament back from a six-week ban. Like, at what point is the penny going to drop? Understood. That he's going to realise that this this cannot continue, and it's such a shame because when he gets it right and when he plays, he's so good to watch. He's absolutely brilliant. His squash is just his athleticism and his movement and how powerful he is, and he's and he's just the way that he plays. I mean, he had he had Farag worried and was nowhere near his best, Mustafa Sal. So the potential of the man is frightening. However, until this gets tidied up, you're not going to see much of him because he's going to be continually on the sidelines. Well, that being said, based on the incidents that happened at that tournament, it, do you see a suspension looming for him? Um, and even if you don't have any inside knowledge of it, I, do you- I don't. I don't. I don't. I don't have any inside knowledge, no. But I don't see how PSA cannot take action and ban him. If they don't, then all the players will be in up in arms, as will the non Asal fans, because how can you allow that sort of behaviour to happen? It's it is it's unacceptable on the tour. Um and it will get, I'm sure it will get dealt with. That's that's four pretty big incidents in in one event, Bill. And so, what's the end game with this, in your opinion? Like, so is it, like who who is the person who's going to step up and say and take him and say, hey, you need to change your game. You need to do this. You could still win. Is is there such a coach out there? Is there someone out there who who can who can do this for him? Absolutely, yeah. I I think what could benefit him is maybe get out of Egypt. I mean, you can imagine the whole frenzy around Mustafa being at home and he's got such a fan base with all the kids and the followers and everything. And sometimes that comes with the pressure in itself. I think it may do him some good if he were to say, go down to Florida, go out of Kinetic and work with El Hindi. El Hindi's doing some unbelievable work with his players, doing some terrific work with um, Amanda Sobe. He's done some great work with Diego Elias. So if... Sal could take himself away from the limelight, 
if it was me advising him, I'd say, right, we're going to spend six months just keeping out of the way. We're going to work on your game, tidy things up, come back, and then hopefully the dust will settle and people will then start to appreciate him for his brilliant squash as opposed to the misdemeanors. Uh, last question on, on that is, was the video that we saw Joey and Lee, uh, did Joey and Lee introduce, did, did, was that shown to Mustafa at any point during that tournament? No. So when that was being shown, uh, Mustafa was not near a TV monitor. It was, there were a couple of monitors in the players were areas. It wasn't shown on the monitors for him to see. And there was also no audio. So the only way he could have found out about it is anybody watching at home could have then messaged him before he walked on the court and told him. Lee Drew actually went up to Mustafa and told him, this bit I'm not too sure about whether it was appropriate or not. He said that we are going to be keeping an eye on you and it has been brought to light about the hand-holding situation. So I'm just telling you to be on your best behavior for this match coming up. Gotcha. No. So my question was, I understand that he might not have seen it right before the match. My question more was, did they show it to him any, at any time previous, like in the morning, the day no, before no, no. at all? So, no, no, so, no. no. So he, the, 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 debut, the debut was live. Okay. Interesting. Well, that was when it was first aired. It was first aired when you saw Lee and Joey on there. Okay. But, Okay, interesting. So, so last thing, and you had you kind of um, brought this up, and and um, whether you have any inside knowledge of this or not, I don't know. So, uh, talking about Assal, possibly, maybe the best thing for him is to get out of the uh, the, the political uh, whirlwind that is in Egypt uh, that swirls around him, and maybe move somewhere else. And um, we saw that um, Diego Elias, uh, the number one player in the world coming into the tournament. Uh, was not his best during this event. Struggled against Suarev Gosal. That was for you, PJ. I'll call him Suarev. I know you like when I do that. Um, Suarev Gosal uh, eking out a win, um, and 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 then and then losing um, losing his next match uh, to Mazin. Um, did you uh, notice that while Hindi was not in his corner during during his uh, the match that he lost? Yeah, everybody noticed the the. Um the fact that uh, El Hindi wasn't around. Um, could you say it affected him? I mean, Gosal was absolutely brilliant in his match and he turned the clock back 10, 15 years. He was, abs- it was one of the best performances I've seen from the Indian player. Mm-hmm. He was brilliant. Um, Elias, he didn't have a particularly great British Open. I know he became number one there, but he, he, he didn't win that event. He had a great tournament of champions in January, obviously, but he didn't, Perform particularly well uh, at the World Championships either. So, possibly de- struggling to deal with the fact of the newly crowned world number one. I don't know. That comes with a pressure, a pressure that I can't um, appreciate because I never got to that position. But I know that a lot of players do talk about it. Um, there are a few f- rumours behind the scenes about the reason for El Hindi departing and going back to Florida it's could be along the lines of since he got to world number one Elias has taken his foot off the gas a little bit he's been enjoying the fruits of becoming world number one and not dedicating himself entirely to his trade and this is where El Hindi has been so good for Diego he's made him more professional and he's you know knuckled him down to some really hard work and we've seen those fruits bear, given the fact that he's reaching these late rounds, he's winning tournaments, and he's 
you know, his best, his number one player in the world. So I think there had been a bit of a breakdown by all accounts from that particular work ethic. And you, you've got to give Diego some credit. The fact that he's become world number one from in Peru, in such a small country with such a small following, he's got to the top of the world rankings and he's, he's going to enjoy it. And I, He's a guy that enjoys himself off the court as well as he does when he's on the court playing. He's always been a, a guy that likes a party and he, he, he likes to socialise. That's just the way he is. Um, so El Hindi just felt that he was getting frustrated, possibly. Again, this is all speculation, getting frustrated that Diego had just, he hadn't, he'd taken his foot off the gas. Right. So in, it... and, he, and he decided decided that he didn't want to be part of it. Whether this is the end of their relationship or what, I have no clue. I'm not speculating anything there either. But it's it will be a conversation that will need to take place between the pair of them to rectify any issues between them. Gotcha. I mean, it, it, in the era of the super coach where we have you know Rabo and um, Roddy Martin, Wal Hindi, Greg Gaultier, it's it, it's. I, I would say five years ago, nobody would have thought a thing about it, right? Because a lot of times in these tournaments, you saw players being coached by other players, things like that. But these yeah. top these top players now, the coaches are almost as famous as the players themselves, right? Because for the most part, they're all ex-players or fa- very famous coaches or think they're really famous coaches. But it was pretty noticeable And uh, during the tournament. Is there a reason, um, and you can answer this or not, is there a reason that during that um, match against... Um, uh, Gawad, that you guys did not mention that um, that Al Hindi was not that Al Hindi wasn't there and he was being coached by his dad. We we knew that there was something going on. We didn't know to the to what extent. We didn't really want to bring much light to that particular matter because there was a lot of speculation going on at the time mm-hmm. and nobody really knew. Okay, the, uh, we didn't want, we didn't want to speak out of turn uh, and disrespect either Wale or or Diego, but. Diego has openly said that in his team and his group, he's got all of these kind of moving parts with Greg and Diego, with uh, Power and um, El Hindi. But the one person that he listens to just as much as everybody else is his dad, who's right. obviously taken him from the absolute, you know, his, his embryonic stages are right up to where he is now. So the fact that El Hindi wasn't there, I suggest would have been a bit of an issue, but he would have been comfortable with the fact that his dad was there because he has been over the years and he's always been an integral part of his, of his game. So gotcha. gotcha. We just didn't want to, didn't want to, didn't want to talk about that particular incident. Okay. So, so let's, let's wrap this up. So I'm curious cause you were there. Um, uh, uh, tell me about the overall atmosphere at the championships that the train station looked like a, I mean, the venue looked spectacular. That um, wasn't quite as yeah. loud as maybe I expected it to be, but as far as like the the, the actual visuals, stu- absolutely stunning. I mean, John Flanagan <clears throat> and his team, assisted by Mark Walter, obviously the Walter family, have just done an amazing job of bringing top level squash into <clears throat> into the area. The venue, it's very similar to Tournament of Champions, same designer actually. Uh, I think it's David Burnham who designed Grand Central. He designed Union Station and the, the the vibe and the feel is very much the same. However, I do prefer the Tournament of Champions because the Vanderbilt Hall is slightly smaller. So you get that little bit more of an intimate feeling. It was quite hard to get an atmosphere at Union Station just because of the way <clears throat> the seating was. It was actually quite 
it was like a slow tier and quite a wide tiered seating system. Mm-hmm. So especially for somebody like Michael Absalom to really engage with the crowd and get that sense of intimacy, it was it was quite hard. And as great of a venue it was, as it was, and as great as John Flanagan and his team are, unfortunately squash just isn't that popular or there aren't that many people that play in Chicago. So it's not like New York where within a small area you've got so many clubs and players to, to travel in and come and view it. So on certain days, the seating was a little bit light. Right, right. For a World Championships. Also, the matches, because of the uh, the lighting, the, the matches during the day up until about four o'clock, five o'clock before the sun started to go down, it was the visibility was an issue. Matches were starting at noon. The sunlight never came in, but the brightness of the, the sky came in. So there was no di- direct sunlight on the court, but it was very bright, which made a white ball and those backgrounds quite tough. When you got to six, seven o'clock and the lightings went down, just the natural lighting of the the station and the fact that we've got the Z court, the ZL Turkey court, the purple court on in that particular station was just as good as of it. That actually looked better than the TOC sitting. So from the British, it wasn't quite as good. From the British Open to the uh, the World Championship of Chicago. Um, we talked about Elias's decline going uh, from that event in the British Open, where where he, you know he had a, he had a pretty good tournament, even though he didn't win and he usurped, he he became number one, uh, but fell off yep. at the Worlds. Would you say that Michael Absalom's performance at the British Open then the fall off from Chicago was as stark? <laughs> no, Absalom was absolutely brilliant. There were some issues with Absalom's voice because on one of the particular days he got told not even asked he got told to announce a whole handful of events and presentations which exceeded his job title really and because he did that he he strained his voice cords and that was why we why what was his job what is his job title isn't it master of it's not master of ceremonies um, I actually don't know the official. Yeah, he's the he's the MC. MC? But that's, yeah, he's a yeah yeah. But that's for the PSA. All right, he's the PSA MC. All right, all right. I'm just that's, I'm just saying. Were were the things that he was asked to announce ceremony ceremonial or no? Yeah. Okay. That's it. That's last. No further questions, Your Honor. I'm done. No further. No, no, for, no further. Yeah, right. His jacket was really cool in the in the uh, in the um. It, awesome. That's from that's from his school actually. That's from his Millfield. Uh, Public, we call them public schools in England, which uh, are private schools. I thought it might have been from the bespoke guy who, who's one of the um, one of the uh, sponsors of that tournament, the guy who owns the tailoring no, no, company. I thought that, he that's from his school. He did have a matching um, dicky bow tie as well, but he didn't have the I don't know why, but he didn't have the courage to wear that as well as the, the jacket. But he was awesome. He's such a great guy. Michael. I know he he's is. A, he's a real. Character I'm sure I'd love him. And, uh, I'm sure I'd love him if I didn't if yeah. I wasn't so envious of him. How about that? You would. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I like the honesty. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So That's so the last right. thing on the PSA coverage, um, the sideline reporting idea, awesome. I mean, I think that should yeah. be a staple. Um, I, yeah. you need somebody who's good at it. I mean, it makes a huge difference if you uh, watch um, watch PGA golf and you have Amanda Renner who who does it for CBS and does that type of thing, like yeah. between like when action's not going on or even when it is, and kind of giving some local some color on the sidelines. That is such a good idea. Um, get somebody who's yeah. good at it, and that could add a whole new flavor to uh to to the to the coverage. Just a fantastic idea for sure. 
Yeah, I mean, it was a great team effort all round. There was a little bit of trial and error going on. A few things that the director wanted to give um, a bit of a run out. And I agree with you entirely. I think that the the, the formula is, is brilliant. We just need to tighten a few things up. And I, I think we're actually starting to look like a, a decent outfit now, which is good. But uh, unfortunately now, with the way the shows are going... Joey's starting to have a lot more input, a few more ideas, which coincidentally takes a lot more time, effort, research. We're having to go back through previous matches to bring up clips to put into the next show. So our days are a lot more fulfilled than they were previously. And, you know, the workload and the timings just didn't enable that to happen. But we've, we've got, we've got plenty of ideas, Bill. We're, we're, we're yeah. getting there. I mean, all these meetings focused on sabotaging uh, Mustafa Sal's career must take some time up. So you probably can't get to the other stuff. That's fair enough. I understand that completely. <laughs> um, so PJ, what's next for you? I know you're you're headed back uh, to to England uh, uh, after yep. feasting on cheesesteaks in Philadelphia all weekend. Um, how, how was your Geno's Geno's and say, Pat's I, adventure? I've, 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 I've been down here two days, and uh-huh. I've seen more in the last two days than I have in my. 20 years coming here as a player and a, and a commentator. Right, right. Awesome city. It, so much history. I didn't. I had no clue. Yeah. It is awesome. Phenomenal. That whole, the downtown area, we spent some time in Little Italy, sampled obviously Pat's, Pat's Philly cheesesteaks, which were, I can still feel it sitting on my stomach <laughs> now. That was, that was an experience, but <clears throat> just the atmosphere down there, you know, the inner city workings and goings on. Uh, it was, it was brilliant. Did the Rocky Steps, did the statue, uh, went to the sort of thinker, so did, did, That's awesome. did, uh, did yeah. quite a bit of stuff yesterday, which was brilliant. Little Italy in Philadelphia is—you think you've been transported back into the fifties? It, it's one of those areas, like honestly, the Little Italy's in the other cities are great. Like Boston, obviously, has a great North End and a great Hanover Street and all that, but it's still somewhat modern in in, in places. In Philadelphia, yeah. they're they're still burning barrels. They have during the during like they have barrels burning on the street for warmth, just like they did back, yeah. like in old movies. It's incredible. In, like in in the, in, the, in the Rocky days, where the, the guys are just sitting there, to, you know, humming tunes and singing, and they're all you know. Huddled around the around the barrels. You're right. It was crazy, crazy, absolutely, absolutely crazy. So, what's next for you, uh, PJ, on uh, PSA TV wise? So, I'm I'm flying out tonight back to London. I've got a day in London, enough time to do some. We call it washing, but you call it laundry. So, a quick turnaround with the laundry, and then on Tuesday morning, driving up to Manchester. I've got the Manchester Open coming up, which should be another great event. Um, there's five of the top ten. Not playing it in the men's. Um, Joel, Joel's defending champion. Top half looks a lot easier uh, for Farag. Um, some great quarterfinals line lined up. You got Makin to play Ali, Victor Cruan to play Gawad, uh, and then the winner plays Tarek probably. Yep. Um, there's there's no Mohammed El Shabagi, which was a bit of a surprise. No Elias, no Cole, no, no Marwan El Shabagi. But the women's looks great. The women's looks looks really good. Um, Joel King, Joel King, King what, number one. Yeah, Joel yeah. King number one. Uh, it, the, it, I was looking at the draw and uh, I was thinking uh, Joel Amanda would be a uh, a no a no brainer final. But then it looks like again Amanda has to get by Kennedy and Tayeb to get to the final. So no no, no easy or task. Or El Arabi. 
or our or or El Arabi. Yeah, think yeah. it's tough down there as well. Yeah, yeah, not not easy. So so don't don't write her off. So for any on any given day, she she can cause an upset. Yeah, no, I'm. And she looked like she was playing well at the world. I so. I have uh, I think in a podcast maybe about three months ago I talked about El Arabi and said that she's the one to look at next. Since then, she's severely disappointed me, and so but just know. Uh, right now I'm down on her, but if she does come through, I will take full credit for her uh, for her uh, um, reaching the top of the women's ranks. So, Ro- yeah. Rowan, I, I believe in you, you Rowan. Saw it. I- you, you heard it here first. You heard it here first. <laughs> you, you heard it here first. Oh, no, so, yeah. so it should be another great event. It's in, it's in, um, it's in the National Centre in yeah. in the UK, the National Squash Centre. They always put on a good uh, good event there. Sort of, um, it, they can, it's... It coincides with US uh, with England squash as well, so it's at the the facility there. Yeah, the PSA and England squash do a great a great job as always. Um, quick turnaround for a lot of the guys that have worked from the World Championships. The de rigging, the taking down of the court, and then the transportation across is it's a hell of a schedule for them guys. Yeah, and so, and the players. I mean, Ali Farag coming off a World Championship is now going to go play in a Manchester Silver event. I mean, yeah, you know, only only in squash, right? Listen, six. He's 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 catching up for lost time. Yeah. You know, to think that you know, just just very quickly touching on Gawad. He was in a wheelchair yeah. six months ago with his plantar fascia issue. Farag wasn't even on court after the U.S. Open. Looked yeah. like he was. People were talking about a potentially career-ending injury early on when they when they didn't know as much about it. He's had to recalibrate his movements and everything. And here he is. He's just won the British Open. He's won the World Champs, and now he's off to Manchester to play next week. I mean, it's. Testament to the guy. What what a legend! What a shout out to German medicine too. Un- unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Vorsprung durch Technik, as they say. That's exactly yeah. what I was going to say. Um, yeah. So PJ, we did this without Connor. Uh, we'll see how we'll see if it yeah. actually gets gets air. But I feel I feel Connor was missed a little bit. But I think going forward, that um, you know what, if if we might maybe want to just maybe make make this a two man show, we'll talk about it, right? Um, no comment. I, I, I miss him. I miss Connor dearly. I do, I do too. But it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks. It's been a pleasure as always. Thanks, PJ. Thanks for listening to another show on SQR Squash Radio. We really do appreciate you taking the time to listen. And we have a quick ask. In an effort to help us grow, if you have a quick minute, please consider sharing an episode with a friend who might be interested or leaving a rating on any of the platforms you listen to your podcast. It would mean a lot to me and the rest of the team. Thanks so much and have a great day.